If I can invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. Hebrews chapter 9. The battle with stubborn sins is usually a 15-round fight, not a little exhibition match where we exchange punches for a few minutes and uh, and then go out for dessert afterward. It's a it's a real full-scale battle. And and that's because uh difficult sins, stubborn sins are cultivated appetites that leave lingering desires. Right? You if you have a sin in which with which you've struggled for a long time, that means you've actually cultivated an appetite for that sin and and it leaves a lingering desire for it. There's something that remains unsatisfied and therefore you have to go to battle with that. Continual practice of that sin, and and I know that sometimes we like to think that we haven't been practicing it, we've been enslaved by it, but we actually engage in sin by virtue of choice. So, so if we've repeatedly sinned, we have repeatedly chosen to do so, which means we have cultivated and practiced that sin. The words of Peter in Second Peter are, we become trained in it. So, con- so when we've had continual practice, that creates deep patterns in our life. And, and it's not it's not uh, generally going to be the case that those patterns are completely eliminated overnight. It can be. Sometimes, uh, sometimes it goes from, you know, from a deep in, ensnarement in sin to a rescue that leads to freedom and really no return to that. Right? But, the fact is, that's not something promised to us in the scriptures and not something experienced by most believers. It's actually a pattern of disobedience that needs to be replaced by a pattern of obedience. That we need to train ourselves for the purpose of godliness just as we trained ourselves for the pattern of sin. And, and that means it's going to be a fight. And uh, I quoted in the first message uh, a man who's spoken in our conferences before, Deepak Reju, who talks about it as idolatrous heart and an unsatisfied body. Right? If we have, if we have engaged in patterns of sin, it's because there's something internally that we have actually looked to for satisfaction. It's become an idol for us. But we've also cultivated appetites. And don't think, um, I mean, I'm using the word appetite, think desire, think biblical term lust. And, and the combination that, that we all wrestle with is mind and body. And we know enough about how life works that those two are intertwined to some degree. Right? That someone enslaved to social media. They design all of those optional buttons for you to press because they produce neurological responses in you. You get endorphin rushes when you hit the like button. And they put those kinds of physical responses there, particularly because they they actually sort of hook you in. Some people can't go 
minutes without impulsively, reflexively wanting to see what's happening on their phone. If they don't look, there is some unsatisfied craving. That's my point. If you've spent all of your time practicing this pattern, it's not going to just disappear. There's going to be lingering effects that you're going to have to fight with in order to see real change happen. And that's what we've been working through. So far, we've looked at three of four steps. The first is to make it difficult to sin, that we should remove opportunities for temptation and build in obstacles to the act of sin, right? So we we try to, as the scripture would say, to, to, to find a bypass around points of temptation. We, we remove the opportunity. But we also try to build walls in so that we have to make deliberate and conscious choices to sin. That's really the point of it, right? Having to make another choice is an opportunity for you to respond to the work of the Spirit to pull you back from the path of sin. So so when you have to climb over the fence, so to speak, you're having to make deliberate choices to do so, and that can be an occasion in which uh, your conscience can be triggered by it. All right, So make it difficult to sin. The second was to build in biblical resistance through the word of God. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. So you're wanting to go before the point of temptation, before the battle with sin, you are actually doing the spiritual exercise of being in the word and putting the word in you. Because across the board, the word is good for you. And then specifically truths about this this issue that you're wrestling with, the core of it and the things that are contributing to it. You need to have God's word in your heart so that the sword of the spirit is available to the spirit to bring to bear on your conscience, right? We're not talking revelation. All of a sudden, you're going to have some word from the Bible you've never read or seen pop into your head. Right, So you're actually loading up the armory, like Ephesians 6 would say, hiding the word in your heart so that the sword of the Spirit is present for the Spirit to bring uh, correction, encouragement, conviction. So you're building biblical resistance through the word of God. Then last week, we looked at the fact that we need to have both a rapid and right response when we sin. We need to deal with it quickly. Right, So the Spirit is already fighting, and we need to respond to his fight. He's already at work fighting against the desires of the flesh, and we need to yield obedience when he begins to fight against rapid response. And then a right response, that the Father is ready to forgive. The moment we are aware of our sin is the moment we should run to a God who loves us, is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? So we, we, we respond rather than, oh, there I go again, and then just ride it out, digging the trench deeper. Because remember, if it's a continual 
practice of sin, every time we let it ride out, we're actually digging the trench deeper. So we need to respond quickly. We need to respond correctly to sin when it does happen. The fourth, if you have a really good memory from four weeks ago, I said establish an appropriate level of accountability. So here's, uh, this is, this one's, um, what I've done, I've chosen the book of Hebrews. I'm just going to tell you up front what I'm doing. Because I've got it, like in the introductions there, I'm going to hit three quick truths about accountability from the book of Hebrews. And we're going to, the last passage we get to, we're going to dig into that one, all right? So that's, that's the plan. And then, and then we're going to talk application, all right? So let's look at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. Because here's the first thing about accountability that we need to understand, that accountability to God is inevitable. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So here's the writer of Hebrews is talking about the inevitability of judgment before God. That's a truth that's taught throughout the scriptures. Uh, The same thing is taught here in terms of the issue of sin and whether or not it's been dealt with in the death of Christ or whether we will, in fact, be giving an account of God for our sin in that way. Romans chapter 14 and verse 12 says, each one of us will give an account to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5 says that the day will come when God will examine the hearts of people. Right, so it's there's going to be an, an evaluation and an examination by God. Second Corinthians chapter five verses nine and ten say we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Right, so that truth is really essential to understanding accountability when we talk about it. Because I'll come back to this, but the ultimate point of this is that we're going to give an account to God. Right? There's, there's gonna be at some point an owning up to God. We're gonna stand before Him and give an account. And that ought to be the deepest, strongest, controlling reality of our life. We live before God. And so when we talk about accountability, it should not all of a sudden shift to a purely horizontal plane and setting up some kind of system that maybe will help us do better. But that it all flows out of the fact that at some point, we're going to have to accept responsibility and give an account of ourselves to the Lord. That's, if, if, if we are, a, if we've gotten caught up in what I think is the human problem of blame shifting, because I'd say that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, or particularly now in our culture of a victim mindset, because we've had decades of of saying essentially that if things don't go right, it's things outside of my control, right? It's the circumstances, or it's my genetics, or it's my my whatever, and and all of them seeking to free us from responsibility. If our life has become a constant avoidance of responsibility and accountability, then everything I'm going to say in the rest of the message isn't going to, you know, it's just like going to be 
blown right by you because you're going to like, well, whatever. And, and we have to understand that, that, that it's, it, God actually expects us to give an account of ourselves before him. And, and that's the root of it. And we'll come, we'll come back to it. I'm just laying some, some planks down, all right? Go to chapter 13, if you would. Because here's a second truth about accountability that's important for us to get. Look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. So first is accountability to God is inevitable. We will all give an account of ourselves. Secondly, accountability to spiritual leaders is commanded and profitable. 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you. So commanded, you can see that in the words obey and submit. Accountability, they keep watch over your souls and it's profitable. Look at the end, it's actually stated negatively. This would be unprofitable. The point is if you actually uh, are heeding this verse, then it will be profitable for you. This would go alongside of First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, the response of God's people to those who have charge over you and give you instruction, have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 15 and 16 that talk about uh, yielding, submitting to those who have responsibility to lead. All right, so I... If you've joined the church in the last, whatever, you know, three decades, you've probably seen me somewhere in the membership class say that a part of our understanding of life in the church is that in accountability is something that everyone is a part of in the local church, right? There's mutual accountability. We'll look at in just a second. There's accountability from spiritual leaders toward the body, and there's also accountability from the congregation toward the spiritual leaders. First Timothy chapter five says that if elders sin, rebuke them. If they go on sitting, rebuke them before all. all right, so no one is above accountability inside of the, the congregation of God's people. Right? And, and that's radically different than our culture. Right? Our culture stresses Individually, individuality, uh, stresses basically nobody being able to tell me what to do. <laughs> and I don't answer to anybody. Right. And that, that's the way of the world. That's not actually the way of God's people. We are all accountable to God. That was the first truth. And God has ordained that inside the congregation of his people, there are spiritual leaders who are responsible for exercising some level of accountability as to regard to the life of the church and, in fact, the obedience of God's people. And it's, a, it's actually commanded and profitable, right? So here's what I just say it this way. If, if, if you bristle against that, Right? That's probably just reality as a sinner. If you reject that, it's ungodliness. Right? I mean, I, I can live with the fact that we all sort of bristle with being under accountability. 
But if we reject it, we're actually going against God. We're going against his word. And not only are we being disobedient, we're taking a path that is described as being unprofitable for us. Right? It's, it's a good thing. It's a, it's a good thing. And we, and we recognize that in so many other areas of life that, that God puts structure into human existence because it's helpful and valuable. And so we should, we should acknowledge it, affirm it. And, um, you know, obviously in, in this kind of a text, uh, you know, I've had situations where pastors are afraid to say stuff like this. And I always think to myself, well, it's, it's actually God who said it. Right? I mean, look at verse 17. That's not, that's not Dave Dorn writing and saying that. That's God saying that. So we shouldn't be embarrassed or afraid of saying what God says. Just like, you know, it, it'd be like a, a husband reminding a wife of what God says about that, or a wife reminding a husband about what God says about his responsibilities, or a parent telling a child what God says about it. And, and a child, hopefully with honor and respect, reminding a parent what the Bible says about the parent. I mean, it's, it's ultimately God's word that matters and whether or not we believe him enough to submit to it. That's, that's really the issue. Whether we believe he's right and therefore submit to it or we try to justify our rebellion by, by pointing out what we think would be exceptions to the rule. Well, I would obey my parents if they were or I would submit to my husband if he was, or I would love my wife better if she was, right? We want to try and cast again the blame outside of ourselves instead of accepting accountability for the right response in our circumstances. That now leads us to the text we're going to dig in a little bit, all right? Look at Hebrews chapter 3. So first plank to God, accountability to God is inevitable, Second, to account- accountability to spiritual leaders is commanded and profitable. And then third truth or plank that we're going to stand on this morning, accountability to one another is expected and valuable. It'd be nice if I turned to Hebrews 3. I actually turned to 1 Timothy 3. And I'm like, where's that text? All right, there we go. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brethren, there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So I said accountability to one another is expected, because here's again God's word, take care, brethren, Right? Encourage one another day after day. So you actually have a responsibility within the assembly of God's people to be taking care and encouraging one another. And it's valuable because look what it, it has a value of protecting us against, right? That there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And then look at the end of verse 13, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So it's expected that this would happen. 
and it's valuable as it happens. Right? And, and, and that's, that's the truth that's here. So let's just dig in a little bit to these two verses as to what I would consider to be uh, when we talk accountability, establish appropriate accountability, that, that these principles in these two verses are very important for us. The first has to do with the sinister and serious nature of sin. The sinister and serious nature of sin. Why do I call it sinister? Look at what it's described at, at the end of verse 13. None of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. All right? Sin deceives. And I think, uh, yeah, I, I, th- I think we all know this. We can all point it out in other people's lives. Like, what, what were they thinking? I mean, how, how could they ever think that that was going to turn out any differently than the way it did? Right? We, I mean, we're, we're really good at seeing the foolishness that sin foists on top of people when it's other people. The problem for us at times is that we think somehow we are uh, impervious to the deceitfulness of sin. That in fact, we're thinking clearly. We know exactly what we're doing. Right? Right? Hey, I've got a handle on this. Right? That wasn't, that wasn't across the line because, right? And, and whenever we find ourselves in excuse mode, we are probably giving the chief symptom of the deceitfulness of sin. Right? We, we actually have been convinced that the same choice that somebody else would make would be sinful, but in my particular case, there are, you know, uh, there are, there are factors that need to be considered. You know, there, there's, there's circumstances here that make my situation different than, than that situation. And, and that's, that's simply the tendency toward deception. That, that gets tangled in the deceitfulness of sin and our tendency to willingly submit to those lies, to believe them and, and, and believe them perhaps simply by giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt every time there's a question. So we're inclined to think too highly of ourselves in that regard. And so the sinister and serious nature of sin requires some help from outside. That's what this text is teaching, right? Because sin deceives, you and I often need people to help us spot its presence and influence in our lives. We're, we're, we're not recognizing it in ourselves other people can see it a little more objectively and clearly and therefore can help us see where we're being deceived. I think one of the, you know, the best, I mean, just like 
uh, image kind of illustration of this um, in a book on humility. The writer talks about a guy who's going to a business meeting. He's all dressed up business meeting. He's all prepared for a really important meeting, stops by a coffee shop to get a coffee and a bagel. And as he finishes the meal, the thing, he leaves and goes out. He's like super sharp clothes, suit, everything. But he's got some cream cheese on the side of his cheek. And he can't see it. He needs somebody to point it out. Right? Because he's not, he hasn't gone by a mirror. He's going to show up to his big meeting with cream cheese on his face. Because he's unaware of it. He's, he's not seeing things like he ought to see. Right? And I've thought about that often. Right? You, and, and think, I, I, I've tried to just like sprinkle out illustrations all over the place. Right? But, but think about, let's say a husband who is consistently rude and unkind to his wife, but doesn't think he is. Right? I mean, here's the way it worked, right? He grew up in a home where that was, you know, that's just the way you, you just bark orders and that's just the way it works. I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm not, you know, whatever. And other people come over to the home for dinner and they watch it and they're just sort of like, like they see this massive clump of cream cheese on his face that he's not getting because he has gone through a process of self-justification as to why it's okay to talk like that. Because we've had this same conversation 85 times, and if I don't start to talk like that, she's never going to change. Right? So it's okay. Or my dad and mom loved each other, and they talked to each other like that, so it's no big deal. Or I don't want to have to walk around on eggshells in my own house. I have to do that all day at work. I should just be able to say what I think when I think it. Right? All kinds of ways to justify a sinful choice because corrupt communication should not come out of his mouth, only that which is good to the use of edification, that it may minister grace according to the need of the moment. Right? So you could, you could, you know, some of you might be saying, well, come on, you're being just a wimpy guy. And I'm like, no, that's the, what the scriptures say. Right? So, so you, you need to think about the fact that maybe the best thing that could happen to you is one of those other guys who are at that dinner with their family slides up alongside you the next day and say, hey, listen, I, I don't want to, I hate to butt in. But here's what I observed. You need to listen and think about it. I watched how you spoke to your wife last night, and I could see it just absolutely drain the joy out of her face. And I watched the other people at the table sort of like shocked when you spoke like that. And here's what I know from the scriptures about how you're supposed to build up rather than tear down. And I think maybe you've got a pattern that you're not seeing and, and maybe you're just blinded to it. And I'm saying it as an act of love and commitment to you because I don't want to see you end up one day with a wife whose heart has become embittered 
by this constant way of talking to her. And one day she just says, I've had enough. Right? That's, that's what ought to happen. That somebody ought to love you enough to speak truth to you because they're taking care, right, that there not be this evil, unbelieving heart there and that they not be deceived by sin. And, and, and honestly, here's what I'd say, and I'm not, I'm not minimizing the guy's problem at all, right, because I just, I just basically, you know, went boom, boom, boom on him. But if this guy has been like this for 20 years, it's second nature to him right now. His first response, his natural response is the wrong response, and he's not even thinking about it. He's still making a sinful wrong choice, but he has closed the gap between the trigger of temptation and the act of sin so much that it, it just happens. Right? And he may wander back and go, hey, I shouldn't have said it. I'm sorry. But he's not really broken and repentant about it. Right? He's not actually resolved by God's grace to seek the change that he needs. And, and so it's necessary for him to have some help from God's people. Right? It's, it's, it's sinister. It's serious because it hardens our hearts. That's what verse 12 says. It hardens the heart. And, and you have to guard again. I'm sorry, verse 13. You will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So sometimes you need people to help you feel the wickedness of it, right? What I just did a minute ago, walking through the scenario, like let's say I'm the guy who was at dinner and I come alongside of him, and here's what I, I what I just did there, right? I described what he did. I described the effects of what he did, so he could see it, right? You you are you are damaging your wife. Everybody around you could see it, and and they were mildly shocked by it. And here's what I'm concerned: is that you're going to so seeds of bitterness in her heart that one day will cause her to be completely closed to you. What I'm doing there is trying to help him see that what he's doing is really bad. Right? Because if I just say, hey, man, you know, you, you should probably think about working in some compliments to your wife once in a while. You know, you should cause her to bloom. Instead of just, you know, always nitpicking at stuff. And I treat it just like it's like just a behavioral, like, well, whatever, you know, you think about it. Here's a little technique strategy. He's not going to see that this is the deceitfulness of sin that could harden his heart so that he just basically, he could, he could take the shot at her and she walks away crying. He's like, well, oh, what a baby. What a, what a baby. Because he's lost any sense of conscience about it. Right? My guess is 20 years earlier, while they were, 20, let's go 21, they've been married 20, 21 years earlier when he's trying to win her heart to him, if he said something that made her unhappy, it was, he was troubled by it. 
And now he doesn't give a rip because his heart has become hardened. His conscience, to use the language of Ephesians chapter 4, has become calloused about it. Okay, so I'm picking on the guys right now. I could walk over here and paint the whole scenario on the other side. My point is I'm sticking with an extended illustration that hopefully every wife in here will also go, not, yeah, my husband needs to hear that, but, boy, it might be that I do some things that I've become hardened about and blind to. Or parents, or teenagers, or fellow members. The point is sin operates like that, and that's why God has given us a body of believers, a congregation to help us see what we might be missing and to actually feel what we might not be feeling, conviction. We need to have that. And that's because, if you look at the text, it's built on the premise of our personal susceptibility to sin. Notice, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you. Look at verse 13, that none of you. So the language of the text is taking into consideration that every professing believer is susceptible to sin. And that, again, fits the pattern of Scripture, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Right? It's, it's, if, if we think that we are actually not susceptible to the deceitfulness of sin, right? If you say, well, I, yeah, I wouldn't be blind like that, or I, you know, I would never have a heart that's hardened about it, then I would suggest to you, you're, you're actually already on the trail. I mean, if, if, if you do not factor in your own personal susceptibility, then you are extremely susceptible. I mean, that's just the reality. And so, so do you ever, do you ever take that into consideration? Right? Do you, do you ever humbly ask for feedback on whether what you did was right or not? Right? As you ask and you listen without excuse. Hey, dear, when I address that issue that I had with you, did I, did I did I handle it the right way? I mean, did I speak in a way that showed you that I was caring about and for you, not just angry with you or bothered by you? Ask and then shut up and listen. Right? Dad, have you ever gone to your child and said, hey, do you you think I I stepped across the line in terms of the way in which I address this problem with you? You ever ask your wife that, Dad? Hey, did I, 
Did I come down a little too hard? Right? Do you, do you ever? I mean, I, I've got lots of opportunities that I could say, you know, where some kind of thing came up and I, and I wasn't sure if I was out of line. And, and I had asked, you know, I'd ask someone other than the person, hey, you, you saw this, you heard this. Help me make sure I didn't, I didn't do something wrong here. Right, do you think I reacted too strongly or do you think I, you know, I came down too hard? Right? If, if, if I ever get to the point where I think that I can't sin, I'm an idiot because I don't believe what God says. I think I'm above what everyone else is subject to, right? If you don't realize that every one of us is in a battle and that battle involves a serious and sinister enemy, who wants to gain advantage on you, then then you're really unprepared for the fight. And maybe exactly why you find yourself right back in the same problem again and again. Right? Because you've struggled with this issue, you've struggled with it, you've tried to... You know, you, you've tried to deal with it on your own and you've not been effective in dealing with it on your own, yet you're not willing to humble yourself to say, hey, what am I missing here? What do I need to help me? Because God has given the resources for that help in his word, in the work of his spirit, but also look at what this text is talking about in the assembly of his people. God has given you resources outside of yourself to help you take this fight on. And if you're never willing to have that possibility that someone might point out something you're missing, might help you see something more clearly than you're currently seeing it. I really don't know how to say it any other way than than just you're proud. Right? You, you, you don't want to risk having somebody point out something that you probably should already see, but you're missing it. And, and you, you want to try and tough it out on your own. And I just say, how's that working for you? I mean, is, is it so important to you to maintain your pride that you will continue on a downward path of enslavement to sin that will be dishonoring to God, destructive to your spiritual walk, and probably be destructive to the most important relationships around you. Is it really worth preserving your pride instead of saying, I'm missing something here. Help me see it. I need help. And, and that's because the third thing in this text is presupposes a congregational responsibility that, and I've, and I've preached more 
like straight line exposition of this passage and other passages. I've gone through Hebrews uh, years ago now, but the the point is that that this group of believers is in a life and death battle with sin, and God calls on them to do it as a community project. He doesn't tell them to tough it out all by themselves. He actually calls on them to move toward each other and to help each other. Take care, brethren. Encourage one another. Look over to chapter 10, a very familiar passage in this book about this. Look at chapter 10, begin verse 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So you are to be moving toward the assembly so that you can be helped and helping others in the assembly. Look at chapter 12. Start in verse 12, Hebrews 12, 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and the sanctification without which we no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes up short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. You see the community aspect, the congregational reality of it, that that we are a part of an assembly and therefore we have an obligation within that assembly and an obligation to that assembly. And one of the things that is important for us to recognize in this, all right, so let me take all three of these truths that I drew out of Hebrews 3, 12, and 13. The sinister and serious nature of sin, our personal susceptibility to it, and our congregational responsibility, right? That all of those weave together into what I'm saying is the kind of accountability that God wants in the church and, and we need to be ready to, uh, to pursue so that we are protected against sin. Right? That that's, that's what God wants from us. Because here's, and you've seen this. You may have experienced this, right? But, but, but here's, here's, all of this is true in the congregational life of the church. And, and here's, almost the instinctive reaction when someone starts to get ensnared in a pattern of sin. They start backing away from it. Right? They, they, start to, they start to pursue ways of hiding what's going on in their life. Because they know if they're around people that love the Lord, what's going on in their life might start bubbling up. It might start bubbling up simply by their silence. 
right? They have, they have, uh, they have a gap in their growth. They're not having any meaningful, uh, worship of God in their heart, in yieldingness to the word, joy over their salvation. Uh, prayer is becoming more and more distant because they're cherishing iniquity in their heart. And if they're in the midst of God's people and alongside of them, they're either going to have to play the hypocrite or remain silent. So they just start backing away. They want to hide in darkness their sin rather than deal with it and move forward. Right, that's, that's the reality of it. So if you find your spiritual uh, growth in reverse, here's what I'd say to you. You need to fight hard the push toward isolation, separating yourself from the life of God in the life of his people. Right? Don't, don't, Find a million ways to justify it. Our life's too busy. We got all kinds of stuff going on. Like we just got things happening because that's the way in which sin will deceive us. It's like things that we were really thriving and prospering under, we begin to turn away from because we just, you know, man, it's just a lot going on right now. Just it's life's busy. We don't really have time to do that. We've not been together or whatever. We're basically finding a way to remove ourselves from conviction. Remove ourselves away from the kind of provoking to love and good works that Hebrews 10.24 is talking about. We're finding a way to remove ourselves from the kind of encouragement and exhortation that might keep us from being deceived by sin. And that's why the accountability of life in the assembly is so important for us. We can't, we cannot miss that. And in fact, if we've had a stubborn struggle with sin, we might need to move tighter into that accountability because we need, we need the encouragement of God's people. We need the help of God's people as the scriptures here in, in chapter 13 and chapter 3 have talked about. All right, so let me suggest some practical applications based on this. And I'm going to hook them under letters, words that all start with the letter P just because it's easy for me to remember and hopefully it'll put a peg there for you. Two perspectives that are important. Human accountability cannot replace divine accountability, right? And and I, what I mean by that is this, is that sometimes people talk about accountability and they're wanting a person to effectively be a, a proxy for God, right? And, and then my whole point of saying accountability to God is inevitable is that's, that's never the right way to think. Right? I'm struggling with some sin. I need some human that I can talk to when I fail and confess my sin to that person and do that because, and I've, I've literally heard people say this, seen it, right? 
God knows we need somebody to actually say to us, you're forgiven. We need somebody to, to absolve us of our sin. We need somebody to, to be sort of that visible, physical person to do that for us. Again, I'd say, where in the Bible do you ever find that? Aren't we called to walk by faith and not by sight? When God says he will forgive me, I need to have some other person say it to me so I can really believe it. I'm supposed to believe God. I never should get to the point where I don't want to sin because I don't want to have to talk to Frank because if I I messed up, Frank's going to be upset with me. As if Frank really matters. Your sin isn't a problem because Frank's going to be upset with you. It's because you're defying God. Right? You can't replace God in this equation because God is really the point. You want help with your sin because you know that God wants you to grow. God wants you to love him and hate sin, right? The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So if I fear the Lord, I'm going to hate evil. And all I'm wanting Frank to do is encourage me and help me, not not be the thing I'm afraid of. I fear the Lord, not Frank. If you're Frank today, I'm sorry. I just, for some reason, that name came up. I was trying to pick one that I, you know, I, w- I was just thinking, all right? So, or maybe I wasn't. The reality of it is, it's not the human that matters. The human is a help. The point is God, right? It's your walk with God that matters. It's really that that's most important. Second perspective, human accountability cannot replace personal responsibility. And I I think this is so important because I think one of the persistent lies of sin is that you're trapped because other people have failed you. And I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be hard. I'm just trying to be honest. You're trapped because you chose sin. Right? That doesn't mean, right? If someone failed to provide the help they should have provided, they are accountable for that. Right? So, uh, I've, I've had to apologize to people that I've failed before. Right? But I'm apologizing for my failure, not for their sin. They chose to sin. And they can't blame me for their sin. They can't blame you for their sin. Right? So accountability doesn't eliminate responsibility. You don't find a group of people that now you can say, well, it's your fault. You didn't call me or you didn't do this or you didn't do that. No, you loved sin more than you loved God. That's why you chose it. Accountability doesn't eliminate responsibility. It's actually an act, a responsible act to seek help. Right? And we love to toss the blame to somebody else. It's just, it's instinctive in our sinful hearts to to think we wouldn't have done this stupid, foolish thing if somebody else hadn't done what they did. But that's being deceived because 
out of the heart, right? Jesus said, out of the heart flow these things. You choose what you want because you believe it is the thing that you need. The fact that you believe it is believing the lie. Right? So hopefully someone will be there to say, hey, you're, you're not thinking right. You're not, you're not feeling right. You're not choosing right. You're accepting a lie instead of the truth. Ideally, somebody's going to be there, but I'm telling you on, on, on the basis of God's word and in what's best interest in your soul, when you stand to give an account for God, God is not going to take, it's his fault. It's her fault. Because you're not giving an account of him or her. You're giving an account of you. Right? God didn't go, oh, Adam, you're right, that woman I made. Oh, Eve, you're right, the serpent I created. So ultimately, yeah, it's my fault. Because God's in control. So so you, you can't do that. Accountability isn't to get around responsibility. It doesn't eliminate responsibility. Right? And, and here's the thing. Our day has become so adverse to the talk of responsibility that it's possible in your mind right now is that you're just heaping, you're just heaping stuff on us. And I'm saying to you, if you're not responsible, then you can't change. Right? If it's really his fault, then you're stuck. If it's really her fault, then you're stuck. It's not until you accept responsibility for the change that has to happen that you're actually able to start to engage the change. So, so it doesn't mean there's, there's no one else to blame. It means start in the mirror first. Start in the mirror, not out the window. Right? Jesus would say, take care of the thing in your eye then take care of somebody else's. So accountability does not eliminate responsibility. So those are two important perspectives. What's the purpose, I think, uh, when we talk about the accountability I'm talking about? It is growth and protection. And again, I'm going to say it, just say it, but it's not sympathy and confession. And here's what I mean. Think, uh, I was trying to think of... uh, So think Weight Watchers. Don't think a group of friends sitting around each with a half gallon of ice cream. Right? Or think think going to a meeting to deal with an alcohol addiction versus sitting at the bar talking to each other about how we're, we're addicted. Sometimes people, that's what they want. You get a bunch of young guys enslaved to pornography and all they do for accountability is tell each other how often they've failed. Right? It's like, oh, I messed up again. I messed up again. I messed up again. And, oh, you know, everyone feels bad for them and sympathize and they feel better because they told somebody they're not hiding their sin anymore, but they didn't actually deal with the problem. Right? It's supposed to be for growth and protection. So, so it really should be 
that you want help and think about what we've done in this series so far. Make it difficult to sin, build biblical resistance, deal with sin quickly and correctly. What you want actually is help with all three of those. You want someone to help you reinforce the walls in your life. That's what the accountability is for. Like you're on, you all of a sudden encounter temptation and you're feeling yourself weak against it. You need somebody to help reinforce the wall. That's what you need. Or you need someone to be speaking biblical truth to you so it's hidden in your heart. Hey, listen, here's something that you need to think about from God's word, right? You're, you're giving, the person's giving you God's word. Or perhaps you're talking to them after you've fallen and they're willing to do the, the tender work of calling you back to the Lord and repairing the things that you just broke. They're not just going, oh, hey, man, it's, we're all a mess and let's just sort of sit here. I'm, I'm not saying there's no sympathy, no care. But I, I, I think most of us know this, right? If it's great if a doctor like is really good bedside manner, but if he can't actually diagnose your problem and solve it, that's not much of a doctor, right? They'll just like pat you on the head. Oh, you know, lots of people get sick like this. You shouldn't really worry about it too much. It happens. It happens to everybody. That's not what you're wanting from a doctor. Now, you don't want them to be a, you know, treat you like you're just a piece of meat and a robot and, and have no care. But what you want is someone who's moving to help you grow and to help you protect yourself against sin. It's not just like a group where you sit around and like everyone just talks about how tough life is or how badly we've all failed. It's someone trying to help you grow, take care that you not be hindered. The kind of person, right? Perspective, purpose, person. Simply mature, and I put it this way. They should be dependable and discerning. You're in Hebrews. Go to Hebrews 5 real quick, all right? Hebrews 5. They should be a mature believer in these two ways, they are growing in Christ. So look at what he says about maturity. And starting in verse 11, concerning him, we have much to explain. It's hard to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles, the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant, but solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So here's, here's what I'd suggest. You, you, if you're looking for someone to help you in this way, with this battle you've got going on, you're looking for a dependable believer. They are consistent, they're committed to the Lord, they're committed to the congregation, they're committed to you. You can, you can depend on them to be consistent, they're a person of character, but also that they're discerning, verse 14. They've got, they've got an ability to handle God's word to discern good and evil because you want someone who's going to speak the truth to you and they have to know the truth to speak the truth to you. So you're looking for somebody who will thoughtfully apply God's word to your life. And 
And what I'd say is that that's, that's, not, uh, that's not an unreachable standard, right? It's actually more a pattern of life. How well do you think about what God has to say about things? And have you learned to discern between good and evil and, and help someone see that? The process, the process. You, you need, I mean, the foundation of it all has to be engagement, full engagement in the life of the assembly. Here's what I've said this multiple times. I'll just say it quickly. You need to be close enough to see other people and close enough to be seen by other people. Right? The most dangerous position for a Christian is someone who wants to hide what's going on in their lives from other people. And, and, and so... Life in the assembly is not just showing up for a service. It's, it's a connection to a body of believers that you can take care, right? You can pay attention to, consider one another. You have to be close enough to be able to see and close enough to be seen. Because right? accountability, and I'm, there's stuff that's good, can be good for it, but but so much of it has been reduced to a friend with a checklist. Did you read your Bible today? Did you, you know, did you do this today? Did you do this today? Right? And, and I've said this before, but I mean, I don't know anybody involved in serious sin who has a pang of conscience about lying. I've, ne- I've never yet met a man who's cheated on his wife who won't lie about it. I've never met yet a person addicted to pornography who won't lie about it. I won't, I've not met yet a person who has a serious lack of self-control in their spirit with regard to anger who doesn't cover it up. I mean, that's, that's the reality. So, so like, well, so we sit down and go, did you get angry at anybody this week? No. I remember one time doing marital counseling decades ago. Okay. So don't decades ago. And they, they were really in trouble and they were really going at each other. And so I'd given them an assignment and they came back in and I, and I said, so how'd it go this week? Do you guys have any problems? Well, you know, we had, a, no, not really. It was all right. And we start talking and I hear about a fight that happened. I'm just making up the dates now, right? So, you know, we met on a Tuesday. They had a fight on Wednesday. They had another fight on Thursday. Another, I mean, over the course of the meeting, they had had fights just about every day of the week since then. When I asked them at the beginning, how'd it go? Oh, it was pretty good. It was all right. Because they just, they just weren't thoughtful and thinking about it, but they were at war with each other. Right? The, the point is, when I first asked them, if I'd have just said, okay, everything would have been like, oh, great, you guys are doing great. But it wasn't until we started talking and it was like, no, it wasn't so great. Because someone had to be close enough to see what's going on. And the reality of it is, if you're living at a distance from spiritual interaction, then nobody can see what's going on in your life, right? They can't, they can't tell if you're growing or if you're stalling because they're not close enough. And, and here's the, don't believe the lie. Well, if they were, if they cared, they would get close enough. Well, like if they can never catch you, right? Cause you're here at, you know, 1029 and out the door, I can't put a time on it, right? Like 
60 seconds after I say amen, it's going to be a little hard for anyone to see what's going on in your life. Other than like a smiling face, say, hey, how are you? How's the weather? Good. It's been great, isn't it? Because you're not moving toward people. You can't be seen and you can't see. You need to enlist help from somebody who cares, has character, and is capable of helping you follow through on your commitments. Right? You you know what you need to do to make it difficult to sin, and you know what you're trying to hide in your heart, and you know how you need to deal when sin happens. You need someone to help you carry through on those commitments. You're not looking for somebody to solve your problems. You're looking for somebody to encourage you and help you as you follow Christ, right? You need someone to come along. Employ the help early in the fight rather than after you fall. Explain, not excuse your failure so that you can receive encouragement, exhortation, and equipping. Right? Just, hey, here's, here's, I mean, I, my, you know, my daughter didn't do what she was supposed to do, and I had told her the third time, and finally I just blew it. That person, a person could sit down and say, hey, listen, let's talk about this, right? What could you have done differently? How did you handle it after you sinned? Right? Did you make it right, the right way? What can you do in the future to prevent being in that situation, make it difficult to sin? Hey, here's a text that I think you should be really be thinking about. You should be meditating on, right? You're just helping the person do the thing that they know they need to do, right? That's, it's, it's really not complicated. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. Go back to chapter three for a moment, please, because I want to finish here. Because here's the bottom line. When we're talking about this kind of accountability, the goal is to run away from sin toward Christ, not away from Christ toward sin. Look at verse 14. I didn't read that one, but it says, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. The thing that makes what I'm talking about different than, than some self-help group or some behavior modification process is that it is all about Christ, right? If you're here today and you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you have acknowledged that you're a sinner and that Christ is a fully sufficient Savior and that your hope is only in him, right? That he alone can save you. We're not talking about how you can save yourself by this battle with sin. We're saying, Christ is greater than any sin that I might have cherished. I want Christ. I want to follow Christ. But I'm struggling because I've spent the last whatever part of my life cultivating appetites and developing patterns and habits, and and I'm just not growing like I want to and I ought to. And so I'm coming to you as my brother in Christ And I want you to help me. 
Help me see what I'm missing. Help me to be aware of sin that is entangled in my life so that I can grow. I can, I can run from sin to Christ rather than sometimes finding myself running from Christ to my sin because I want Jesus. I want to grow. I want to honor him. I love him. That's what we're talking about. Right? That's, that's the heart of it. Let's pray. Father, please help us to, to appreciate the truth of your word and how it touches down in our lives. Lord, don't let us think that we're smarter than you. Help us to see that Christ is the answer and that his work is not just to free us from condemnation, but to put us into an assembly where we can together grow up into him who is our head. And I pray that you might humble us where we need to be humble and that we might seek for the kind of life in our church and our own participation in it that helps us all grow up into Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.